Would you hear now the reading of God's word this morning? Uh, This morning's reading comes from Jeremiah 29, um, beginning in verse 1 and then verses 4 through 14. So you can follow along on the screen behind me or in your own personal Bible. There's also an insert in your worship guide this morning. Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem, uh, taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the reading of God's word. May it bless us and find a soft place in us this morning. So would you uh, pray with me one more time as we begin um, the sermon and just pray that God would be with us and speak to us this morning. Father, we do pray that would be the case, that you would speak to us from your uh, inspired word of God that you would allow us to hear and to be taught and encouraged by what you want us to be taught and encouraged and hear this morning. So we're listening for your voice, not for the voice of a preacher or the voice of anything deep in our own heart. We want to hear the voice of the living God today. So would you speak to us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So this is our fourth... uh, Fourth and final Sunday in the the current sermon series we're doing, which was focused on Advent... um, We've been doing the four names of Jesus from Isaiah, from Isaiah 9. So I just read from Jeremiah, uh, which is a prophet uh, in the Old Testament. Um, But primarily, we've been focusing on Isaiah the prophet. So two different prophets, both speaking to us. And let me just read you Isaiah 9, 6 one more time. Uh, We've read this the last couple of Sundays, but this is where the sermon series has been coming from. And it's, it's one, no doubt, you know. Um, You've probably heard it. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. 
The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and this morning, Prince of Peace. So for the last three Sundays, we've learned about Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. This morning, we want to learn about how is this son, how is God, how is Jesus, the Prince of Peace for us? And so that's where the new prophet, Jeremiah, comes in, which we will we'll, we'll use his letter to help teach us what it means that God is really the Prince of Peace. But before we get to that, um, as we're thinking about peace, I want to I show a, a brief video on the screen. Um, and so I'm trying to decide if I want to give any context to this. I think I kind of just want to let it be what it is, Kevin. So... Kevin, if you want to put that video up on the screen, it has no words. It's, there's no sound to it. It's just you got to just kind of pay attention to what's happening. I want you to see, uh, see if you can pick up on what's happening. All right, Kevin, go for it. Did you see what the octopus just did? All right, show it again, Kevin. Let's show it one more time. I want you to focus in on the octopus. You may be saying, what are, why are we showing an octopus video in church? I promise there's a point to this, but just focus on the octopus and see what, he, see what he's doing to the fish. He punched the fish. Did you see that? All right, I don't, we, don't need to, we don't need to beat this into the ground, I know. But there's, there's three minutes worth of video evidence of octopuses punching fish. So don't ask me how I stumbled upon this this week. I just, I found videos of octopuses punching fish this week. Um, and there's a whole article about it. And apparently this is like a, a quite unknown phenomenon that happens underwater. People don't know why octopuses punch fish, but they do. They just have this inclination to punch fish. And so there's a, there's a, a researcher who was kind of studying this and he said, I almost choked on my regulator when I saw this happening. When I saw it the first time, I just burst out laughing. The research prompts many questions, he said, like, is there a species that the octopus prefers to punch? In some cases, the researchers were able to determine the reason the underwater bully decided to strike. Sometimes it's a partner control mechanism to drive fish away from the octopus's next meal, or it can be to control where the fish is swimming, or it can be a form of punishment, he says. And sometimes the eight-legged creature just punches the fish with no discernible incentive. Again, it's, I, think it's, I think it's interesting. And, and what it got me thinking of this morning, it actually reminds me of a story of myself. If you were to talk to my mom at some point, she's probably listening to this, and she'll, she'll tell you the full story sometime when she's visiting. But she tells the story of when young Stephen was like five years old. And I was, I was the middle child, so I was kind of the peacemaker of the family. I wasn't the instigator, um, according to her. But uh, apparently one day I, I hit my younger brother, kind of like the octopus hit the fish. I just, boom, just hit my younger brother. And my mom comes up to me and she says, Stephen, why did you do that? That's so unlike you. That's out of your character. And apparently my answer was, I don't know. I just got filled up with all this, with all this hate, and I just, poof, just hit him. It's kind of just like the octopus. Just like you get filled up with this emotion, and poof, just hit. 
And my mom likes to tell that story because I think it reveals something in each of us of, you know, sometimes we just have these inclinations to hit things or to lash out or to be violent in our, our own unique individual personality type of ways. But I, I do think there's a point here to be made about the world and about each of us uniquely. Just we live in a world where uh, peace is evading and each of us kind of finds ways to be to be contributors to lack of peace in the world. From octopus to five-year-old future preachers, we all have peace-wrecking tendencies in us to various degrees, from little to big. And so I, w- I wanna ask the, the kind of the opening prompting question for you of, as we focus on Jesus being the Prince of Peace, what would you say is the opposite of peace for your life? So if you had to name the inverse or the opposite of peace, what would it be for you? I want, I want you just to kind of arrive at that in your own heart. Because I, I think there's different answers for each of us depending on our life circumstances or our life scenarios. But all of us have an answer to that question. What is the opposite of peace for you? <coughs> I thought about, you know, we talked about violence already with the octopus, but... On a deeper level, there's war. I think a lot of us would go to that level. You know, so if you're living in Ukraine or Russia right now um, or other places of the world where there's war happening, you could say the opposite of peace is war, where there's literal fighting and killing in the world. But on a more individual level, maybe for each of us, and as we go about our daily life and raise kids or go to work or just try to work out our everyday life, I think it's probably more along the lines of anxiety, uncertainty, and feeling lost in the world. So again, there's kind of big picture peace and opposite of peace. And then there's kind of individual life where we're looking for peace. We're looking for wholeness. We're looking for stability. And so when Isaiah 9-6 talks about the Prince of Peace, he uses the word Shalom, Prince of Shalom, which you're living in the city, or at least worshiping this morning in the city of Salem, which derives its name from Shalom. So Salem is literally the city of peace, and Shalom is that Hebrew word that doesn't just mean peace in a blanket kind of way, but it's a pretty all-encompassing, comprehensive word that catches things like wholeness, completeness, full wellness, nothing broken, nothing out of place, ultimate blessing. So when you talk about shalom, it's not just the absence of war, it's the presence of something full, something complete, something that we all, I think, feel lacking in our life and in our larger world. And the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to bring just that, to bring that completeness, that wholeness, that fullness, that everything is in the right place. Everything is in the right uh, perspective. Everything is put together. The puzzle is complete. That's what shalom is. And the gospel of Jesus comes to bring just that. When Jesus comes as our prince of peace, he comes offering to put all the pieces back together. Jesus came to bring peace. Uh, and he, he promises, he says, peace I bring to you, peace I leave with you. So when he left the Holy Spirit with us, he left the presence of peace with us. 
And that's, that's well and good. And when we, look at the, when we look at the cross of Jesus, we see the, the finality of, of peace arriving through violence. Jesus died a violent death on the cross so that we might have fullness of peace on the other end. So we wouldn't have to go through the violent uh, substitutionary death that he did. But on the other side of this, there's one other prince that's mentioned in the Bible. And it, in the book of Colossians and Ephesians, um, they, they both are mentioned here. He, and he's called the prince of the power of the air. So you have the prince of peace on one side, Jesus, who dies on the cross to bring peace to the whole world. And on the other side, you have the prince of the power of the air, who is, he's the antagonistic one. He's, he's the deceiver. He's Satan. He's the one who comes to bring the opposite of peace, but to bring division, to break the pieces back apart, to bring about disobedience. So Jesus brings peace, but Satan brings the opposite the opposite of wholeness. He brings incompleteness. He brings division. So the question I want to answer for us today, which I hope is, I hope is really a practical one for you. I hope you can grab onto something from this for your daily life is, is what can the Prince of Peace do for us in our modern day? What does he speak directly to in our modern world today? So as we look at Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, this letter, um, which is written about at least 100 years after Isaiah, maybe 200 years after Isaiah, um, when the Jewish people have been sent off. So literally, they were in Israel. Now they've been sent off to a faraway land in Babylon, kind of enemy territory. They're living far away from home, uh, under oppression, under hard circumstances, under a harsh uh, emperor. They're living in a, in a dark reality. And Jeremiah writes this letter into their context. And he tells them about how the Prince of Peace is right there with them in the midst of it. And so I'm wondering about each of you. You're not in, you're not in a literal exile. You're, you're not in a faraway. You, you have been captured by a, a foreign enemy. But I do wonder if in your own soul, if there's moments where you feel like you're entrapped in things that are taking away your peace. And that's where I hope God can speak directly to each of us this morning through what Jeremiah says to the Israelites. And here's a couple of things he says. First, he says, the presence of the Prince of Peace for you speaks directly to your anxiety. To those of you that are concerned about your daily circumstances, who are anxious about your everyday life, the Prince of Peace brings redemption. He promises Whatever your daily life circumstances are like, however poor they've gotten, however scary they are, however much anxiety-inducing they are, the Prince of Peace promises to redeem all of that for good. So if you look at Isaiah 29, particularly verses 5 through 9, um, he gives just these beautiful, these beautiful encouragements to the people of Israel. Really, it's focused around three things. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. And then basically grow a family, take wives, have, have marriages, give your children away in marriage. He basically says, you're in the middle of exile and enemy territory, but don't just stop living. Redeem it for good. See that, see that I'm with you, that I'm going to bring something beautiful out of whatever is happening in your daily circumstances. 
So think about your life circumstances for just a moment and think about how sometimes life just gets completely overwhelming and brings about anxiety. It could be finances, your housing situation, food insecurity, your job, kids, your parents, siblings, even your hobbies. Maybe any of that can bring anxiety into your life. And all of it, if there's more than one of those happening at once, it can, it can feel overwhelming. Or maybe, you're, maybe you have a particular life circumstance that's making it particularly difficult. Or you've gone through a particular life circumstance that's made it particularly difficult. Something like a divorce or losing a loved one or moving away or being fired from a job. All of it creates anxiety. The feeling of, of things being out of control. And for Israel, I think they're feeling all of that. They're feeling this out of control type of life. Like, hey, we're not even living in our home city anymore. We've been picked up and shipped off to this place. And we're just, what are we supposed to do in Babylon? We're Jewish people living in Babylon who are under the curse of God because of their disobedience, because of their sin. And it's here where God writes through this letter from Jeremiah. God gives them this redemptive opportunity to find beauty even in a tough circumstance, even in the darkest moment. You see, redemption To be redeemed from something or to find redemption means to be bought back from something. And so they've been placed in exile and God is bringing redemption into their circumstances. The ability to buy them out of their current circumstance and give them something beautiful even within a dark circumstance. And I think that can speak to us today as well. Again, whatever you're going through in your own experience, God buys you out of that and can bring you into something beautiful in the midst of it. There's a redemption process that God lovingly puts us through. And so these three things, the build houses, plant gardens, grow a family, they're just, they're shockingly ordinary things, aren't they? I mean, he's not telling them to do something, you know, huge. He's basically just saying, live, live, live a life. And these are three ways to live a life. Build a house and live in it. Plant a garden and eat the food. And grow a family. I, I just think there's, there's beauty in the simplicity of the ordinary thing that God invites them into. That God's redemptive purposes often come through just putting one foot in front of the other and living life faithfully. So build houses and live in them. Meaning... Don't wait for the bad time to pass. Don't wait to just try to get out of exile, but actually be part of the city and the society where God has placed you. Live in the house that you build, eat meals, invite friends over, laugh, have fun, make it a home. Don't wait for tomorrow to come. Live in it today. Another another way you could say it is actually unpack the boxes, hang pictures on the walls, live in the place where you are, even if you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Even if you want to get out of what you're in now, live fully into the life that God has given you because he's there with you. Maybe you don't want to be there. I don't think Israel wanted to be in Babylon. I don't think I want to be in Babylon. It's a bad place. It's a harsh empire. But God said, live here because I'm going to do something beautiful in it while you're here. Secondly, he says, plant gardens and eat from it, meaning see that there's even good things in Babylon. The soil there can still grow food, just like it did in the promised land. Maybe even better food that you didn't even know about. I I really wanted to go down the rabbit trail this week to see 
what kind of food you could grow in Babylon that you couldn't in Jerusalem? Because I'm sure there were examples. I'm sure there's, there's some kind of fruit or some kind of crop that you could grow better in Babylon than you could have in Israel. I didn't go down that rabbit trail. But it's kind of like if you're living in Salem versus living in, in Jamaica, you know, there's, there's different types. Like you can get lobster here and in Jamaica you can get, you know, really rare exotic fruit. Like there's good things there that you just have to discover the goodness of God there. Plant a garden and eat from it, God says. See, see the beautiful diversity that I've made the world with and enjoy that grace, the hidden blessings and hard circumstances. Use your hands, be independent, make the most of what you have today because there's something good in it for you. All of that is part of the redemption process that God gives to us. And then when he says marry and have children, give your children away in marriage and multiply, basically he's just saying, you know, I, I know you probably pictured having these weddings and growing your family in Canaan or in Galilee or wherever you're from, but, you know, embrace the, the beautiful difference of doing it here. You know, don't be afraid of things being different. Living in a, in a new place for a season is one thing, but growing a family and multiplying and, and creating a legacy in a faraway land, maybe that's a different, a different type of fear that people were living into. That's leaving a legacy and that's building, it's building a life for children who would be born in Babylon, who would have to be taught then about Israel when they came back. But God says, do that and trust that what I'm gonna do is beautiful through that. And then in verse seven, this is, this is a verse that is so important that we have it hanging in a picture in our church in the parlor. But all that leads to verse seven where he says, you know, do those three things and therefore seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You'll see the word welfare mentioned three times there. This is the English standard version. But the word there means peace. That's shalom. The word there is shalom. So you could just insert the word peace there. Seek the peace of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. In its peace, you will find your peace. In its shalom, you will find your shalom. So God's saying, don't just live these ordinary things for your sake. Do it for their sake. Do it for the place where you are. Do it for the hard circumstances that you're in. You don't know who is watching you or who is with you in that hard circumstance. So for you, in your family, or in your workplace, or in your condo unit, or on your neighborhood street, it might not be just you going through a hard circumstance, but he says, seek the peace of the city where I've sent you into exile. And for us as a church, I think this is, this is where the church's purpose really just takes off. Again, we, when we do our prayer times on Sunday mornings in this, in this church, we, we try to very explicitly pray for Salem, pray for our neighborhoods, pray for people in this city, because we believe what Jeremiah said to Israel is the same thing that God says to First Baptist Church of Salem, seek the peace of the city where I've called you. Again, we're not in literal exile, so that's a difference, but God has sent each of us here for a season, for a time, so for some of us for our whole life to seek the peace of the place where we live. If the church is at its fullest capacity, then the city where we are will change for good. Let me repeat that. If, if the church of Jesus is functioning as it should and is living faithfully and fruitfully for the kingdom of God, 
then the city around it will change for good. It will experience more and more shalom, more and more wholeness, more and more completeness. It will be, as I've said other places, it will become the best version of Salem it can possibly be. It will become the best version of wherever you live. That's what, that's what the gospel does, is it brings life into places where there previously was not life or not fullness of life. So we pray for the peace of the city where we live. And for us, that's pretty cool because the city where we live is the city of peace. So it's pretty easy carryover in our mind. And so there's a few promises here. It says, you know, in your peace or in, in the city's peace, you will find your own peace. So as the city becomes better, that's actually where you'll find your peace, right? Which makes sense. If the neighborhood is more safe and there's not as much violence and there's more street lamps and there's good relationships, that's better for you too, right? If more and more people are finding their their fullness of life in the God of the universe and living purposefully and humbly and sacrificially for him, that's going to benefit you too as an individual. And so in its peace, you will find your peace as well. Verse 8 and 9 is, are kind of these, I almost, I almost didn't even mention them. I'll just mention them briefly. Verse 8 and 9, he basically says, but listen, there's other people among you who are saying different things. He's like, don't listen to those people. Don't listen to these other prophets or diviners who are trying to deceive you and lying to you. He's like, I did not, God said, I did not send them. And I imagine those people are saying things like, you need to get out of Babylon now. You need to just... Not, not seek the good of Babylon. You need to do your own thing and just buckle down. And God is basically saying, I didn't say that. I said, seek the peace of the city where you are. So if people are telling you, just get through your hard circumstances, put your, put your head in the sand, it'll pass. Don't listen to that voice. The voice of God is saying, seek the peace of the hard circumstance that you're in. Because that's what the Prince of Peace has given you, is the opportunity to bring peace into hard places, not to ignore it, not to run away from it. I want to speak to two other things just briefly, kind of at the end here. So I, I mentioned about anxiousness in your daily circumstances. So we're learning from Jeremiah with those things. The other one I want to mention is about the future. I think, you know, when we think about peace, a lot of times we lose our peace when we think about what's coming next. What's coming down the pike? The uncertainty of your future. And it's in that place where God promises restoration. So if in your daily life, God promises redemption to bring good things out of the bad, in the future, God promises to bring restoration out of uncertain futures. Verses 10 and 11, these are other, this is another verse you've probably heard quoted before, probably seen in Hobby Lobby on a, on a wood board or something. You know, God says, when the 70 years are completed for your time in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill you and, and bring my promise to bring you back to Israel. And then he says, because I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for peace, welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God promises to restore things that were taken from you and bring you back into good standing. Are you uncertain about what's going to happen in your future? Is that causing you to lose peace about decisions that need to be made, about if I'm going to be able to retire or if I'm going to be able to live out my days as I wish, as I hope? Does that cause 
an immense amount of lack of peace in your life? Do you worry about finding happiness in the future? Do you worry about being healthy, living out fullness of life and fullness of days? Are you worried about being alone when you're older? I imagine you do. I think all of us do to a certain extent. And God says to the uncertain ones out there that restoration is coming. He promises to dust you off, pick you up, clean you, and bring you back home in Christ. That's what he does to Israel after 70 years. He brings them back to their homeland and brings them back to a place of goodness. And this is because God's plans for you are peace. That's his solidified plan, peace, a future and a hope. Nothing is going to deter him from that. Peace is his plan. His plans are are unable to be shaken or changed. Peace is the promised plan for you, not evil, but a hope and a future. Good news always wins. And so the restoration of God comes to those who are uncertain about what the future lies, what lies ahead in their future. And finally, the last part is the last couple of verses here, 12, 13, and 14. Um, So talk about anxiety, talk about the future. Um, The last one is more relational. You know, at the very beginning of the Bible, God said it's not good for man to be alone. So he gave the man a woman and they created uh, a family through that. But even beyond that, we were made to be in relationship with our maker, made to be in relationship with God. And when we're not in reconciled relationship with God, it's just always going to feel off. Fullness of peace is not ever going to fully arrive if there's not reconciliation with God. And so to the lost, to those who are lonely, to those who in soul are, are lacking peace because there's no relationship with with the purpose of life, God promises reconciliation. He promises that those who are far away will be brought back relationally. And so if you're feeling alone or abandoned in the world today or that no one understands you or cares for you or, under, or can fully you know, come to grips with what you feel like you're going through, there is one, there's at least one, and it's God himself. God's promise is that in Christ, what what you were once driven away from, a relationship with God, now has been given back to you through the blood of Christ, which is a relationship with God the Father through him. This is what reconciliation is. It's a relational restoration, an embrace of love between former enemies. You know, the scriptures describe our relationship with God when we're in sin as being between enemies, that because of our sin, we actually are enemies with God. That's a harsh thing to hear. But in Romans 5, it says in verse 10 and 11, for while we were enemies to God in our sin, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And how much more than now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also now rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So through Jesus, the battle between you and God is over. And you may not even know that you're in a battle with God. 
Israel, I think, really struggled with that point. And when they went to Babylon and were exiled, I think that's when it started to hit home. It's like, God was really upset with our disobedience. God was really upset with our sin. And they had a, they had a geographic barrier, you know, from Israel to Babylon that they could now feel the difference. For you and I, it's a spiritual distance. You know, we used to be one with God, but our sin has brought us away from him. And like I love to say, though, you know, when we are far away from God because of our sin, it's not that we have to come all the way back fully to him. God comes to us. It's him who took the initiative to come to us and to no longer call us enemies, but to call us friends again. And that's what the cross has done for us. That's the reconciliation that comes. And that's what verses 12 to 14 show us. Just a beautiful promise. So many I wills in that short statement. I will be found by you. I will restore your fortunes. I will bring you back. Just beautiful promises. Whenever you're in your lowest moments and thinking, no one understands, no one's with me. Read Jeremiah 29, 12 to 14 and see the promises of God of what he will do. We are heard by God again. We are seeking him. We are finding him. We are restored by him. We are gathered back to him. We are brought back towards him. So to finish, um, you know, we're finishing our four weeks. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Um, let me read a, a quote by a, a pastor named Ray Ortland, who summarizes those four names for us. Just kind of puts a bow on it for us because the reality is there's four names of Christmas that we've talked about, but they're one God, one person, one beautiful, loving relationship defined by these four names. And this is what he says. He says, quote, look at Jesus as wonderful counselor. He has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him as the mighty God He defeats his enemies. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. As the prince of peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies. Let's welcome his dominion. When Jesus was resurrected, he said, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, so even now I am sending you. And then Isaiah says in Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So may we experience uh, the Prince of Peace in his fullness today. Whether you're anxious, concerned about your future, feeling lost relationally, not, not known, God, the Prince of Peace, is with us today and forever. Let me close us in prayer. God, we pray that you would uh, just allow something from today to, to sit softly in our soul. We pray that we would long for that peace that you're offering freely to us. And if we if we need to to make that decision today uh, to fully embrace you. Uh, Would you give us the courage to just open up our arms and have you 
have you initiate uh, that, that full embrace, that embrace of, of true life given to us. We want your peace. We want to feel whole and full and complete. And we know that apart from Jesus, we're always going to be lacking in that. So give us today what we need the most. We want to be found by you. We want to find our fullness of life in you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.